Welcome to the Campion College podcast, the official home for audio recordings of college events, guest talks, public lectures, interviews, conferences, and more. Join us now for a recording from the book launch of Jamie Grant's new collection of poems with an introduction from Dr. Stephen McInerney. Uh, my name's Stephen McInerney and I'm Senior Lecturer in Literature here at Campion College and I'm also Director of the Centre for the Study of the Western Tradition. Uh, the Centre for the Study of Western Tradition was established here in 2012 uh, by my colleague, now Dean Luciano Boschiero, who was the inaugural director of the centre. And its aim really is to uh, promote um, study and discussion of Western civilization, uh, to be a research uh, centre for the faculty at Campion and for associate members of the faculty and honorary associates. And uh, there's a responsibility uh, on us at Campion and also on the, the Centre for the Study of Western Tradition to preserve uh, works um, that are perhaps not under threat but certainly are perhaps not given the attention that they deserve any longer uh, in universities uh, and in, in colleges. But at this college our students are exposed to uh, some of the best that has been thought and said in the Western tradition and our centre aims to extend that conversation that we have here at college to the broader community. Uh, we run events like conferences, we had a conference on the late Les Murray last year, we're having our um, Shakespeare conference this year in September, uh, we're doing an event in Melbourne at the end of this month, uh, Greg Sheridan is doing a lecture on the Letters of St Paul under the umbrella uh, works that made the West, uh, which is something that we, we also do here um, with discussions today on Plato's Republic, for example, uh, and, um, and other seminal works. Uh, but the centre doesn't just focus on those big names of the Western tradition. Uh, we also, over the years, have conducted a number of book launches of this kind and with me as the director uh, I feel a particular duty actually to um, promote, if that's the right word, but certainly to support uh, poetry and Australian poetry and it's wonderful to be able to host this event tonight for my friend and, and colleague as a poet, Jamie Grant. I first met Jamie and Margaret uh, in 1997 at the Grace Hotel uh, there was the launch at that time I think of I think it was 97 maybe it was even 96 of the Australian's review of books which no longer exists but the Australian newspaper started a review of books uh, I think the first editor was Shelley Gare uh, and so Robert Gray who had helped me get a poem in there um, said to me, oh, they're having this launch, you should come along. And so I came along and, and was very happy to meet Jamie that night and um, was confronted, actually, when we first met by how uh, sharp and well, acute uh, his observations were about Australian poetry and about literature more generally. 
and um, was complimentary to me, which helped, I think, <laughs> seal the friendship. Um, but uh, I discovered soon thereafter, because I had admired Jamie's poetry after I first encountered it in Jeff Lehman and Robert Gray's anthology, Australian Poetry in the 20th Century, I discovered uh, that there was another very distant connection, which was that my, my dad, who took me to New Edition Books, I think it was called, in 1993, um, he selected a few things for me to read. And when we went to the counter, someone said, no, you must get this anthology, because I was buying books, he was buying me books of poetry. And someone said, you must get this anthology. Um, one of the editors um, works here, and that was Robert. I didn't, the name didn't mean anything to me at that time. Uh, but I, I then discovered that Jamie also worked there, and I think um, another poet, Jamal Shara, worked there, or had worked there. And so someone or other in that store, I don't know if it was Jamie or if it was Jamal, I don't think it was Robert, but someone there gave me that anthology, which had a significant effect on me. And, um, and really um, just confirmed me in what I hoped would be my, um, uh, not career, but certainly vocation to, to write poetry. And uh, I just found that I was so sympathetic, in sympathy completely with the, the spirit of that anthology and of um, the work of poets such as, such as Jamie. And uh, there's some wonderful, there are four poems of Jamie in that anthology. Uh, Sky Writing, uh, Still Life with Desks, um, Daylight Moon, and the other one I think about the ants in the, um, in the bathroom. And uh, anyway, thereafter I went and bought books like this one, Sky Writing and Refinery. Second hand I found them, I think in Newtown. Um, anyway, uh, Jamie is, is a very, very fine Australian poet and um, is neglected, actually, uh, and uh, deserves to be much better known um, than he is. Of course, everyone who's here knows that, uh, so I'm preaching to the choir, but uh, it's a great pleasure for me to, to launch this book. Uh, I did want to just make a couple of observations about hallucination, uh, 21st century poems, which we're launching tonight. Um, it has all the um, features that we're used to in a Jamie Grant collection, wonderful poems inspired by stories about cousins and aunts and his mother, uh, and wonderful poems about nature, wonderful poems. I think the thing that Jamie does better than anyone uh, in Australian poetry is write about the cityscapes. Uh, and. Um, so I mentioned before, Sky Writing is one of the early poems and, and Still Life with, with Desks is another. Uh, wonderful poems about Australian cities. Um, capturing details, often the sites under construction, um, the uh, high-rise buildings in the CBD, I'm not sure which one it is, I think Melbourne in Still Life with Desks, but resembling you know, graphs on a, on a page and that tying in in the poem with the work that's going on in a central business district, and then the, you know, the um, artificial church spires on takeaway chicken operations. So, creating this sense very much of, a, on the one hand, a familiar landscape, but one that's also rather alienating, 
And then finally, in that poem, Still Life with this coming down with the light touching the ankle of uh, a woman on the train. Um, and just the light that's been the, the star of this poem suddenly finding itself touching the light on this woman's ankle that's um, swelled up in the heat and prickly with, with stubble. And so there's this real sense of um, the sharp eye, uh, but also this incredible feeling that is, uh, it's never sentimental, but it's always present uh, through, the, through the cityscapes. Um, I, I want to talk, though, about, initially, about one of the um, poems about family or that's inspired by family. Uh, this poem is called Make My Breakfast and um, it's, um, it's typical in a way of Jamie's poems, um, in this case my cousin's father phoned her the first line, but it's typical in the way that something as important as family uh, often doesn't meet perhaps our expectations for what it, what it should be. And I, I find that that happens repeatedly uh, in, in, his, um, in his work. Pheasant for lunch is, a, is another one. Um, but I'll, I'll just read make, make My Breakfast. My cousin's father phoned her, even though they were estranged, on Christmas morning to complain about her mother. She would not cook his breakfast, he said. He had managed businesses, negotiated at the highest levels, terrified his staff, but still he did not know how to heat a slice of toast. <laughs> My cousin drove across the city suburbs in morning sun. Leaves on the great trees hung down like sheets of discarded gift wrap. At the top of a long driveway, the house was an empty box, brittle as cardboard. In the kitchen, a tap was dripping as he sat at the table. Make my breakfast, he repeated. In those times, it was not unknown for a man to be unable to boil a saucepan of water. Instead, my cousin went to the darkened bedroom. A figure lay under the sheets. Her mother was dead. So the way the poem sort of resolves with the the fact that this miscommunication is really not occasioned by an unwillingness to, to make the toast, but simply by the fact that uh, she is dead, uh, really gets to the, um, I, would, I wanted to say compassion, but that's overstating it, but, but gets to the, the sense that Jamie has about the disconnect in that relationship, but obviously the final disconnection that's occasioned by death. Uh, and death comes up a lot in this book. Uh, in particular, uh, I noticed in the, the wonderful series of poems uh, that make up, um, that were inspired by uh, a series in the Australian, so Orphans and Princes, which is part five of the book, uh, which is a series of biographical sketches of, of famous figures throughout history. Um, but I noticed how once uh, you, you get to Descartes uh, that 
the, the poem often ends on this um, simple, straightforward comment that and died. <laughs> you know, all these things, these wonderful pages, often of intricate form, the sestinas and villanelles and other forms. Um, but that this sense of how all lives end, and that 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 is perhaps more a feature of this work than than any others um, to this point. Uh, so there is a poem in that in that section which I particularly want to to focus on. Um, perhaps my favourite is the poem about George Washington, but uh, the one I want to read, I guess my second favourite is um, humility. Leaving out the question of paternity and the angels in the sky and the kings bearing gifts who were summoned from on high, most of the essential things about the biography of Jesus Christ persuade one of their authenticity because of the particulars which just ring true. The census, the bureaucracy, the hotels unable to make a booking, the stable with its wooden feeding trough improvised as a cot. Anyone looking for hierarchy should be put off by the modesty of his background, which is also what underlies his message. He did not have the connections to found a dynasty or to expect homage from any, for any quality apart from the word, his word. Other prophets and preachers had once been warriors or princes, but he made himself heard, even as a child, by the simple means of a personal magnetism. A refugee soon after his birth, we have not been told much more about his childhood or of how he returned from Egypt to Israel, nor how old he was at the time. But what has survived of him is the gist of his teaching, which began at some point after he arrived in the Galilean countryside, preaching to all who would listen. He did not seem to be a prophet or an ascetic, but instead he worked among people in their ordinary lives, speaking in the open air. He led his disciples along the salt white shore of the lake and spoke in the synagogues as well as on roads and hillsides. He saw fishermen working and farmers with their pigs, attended weddings and spoke to the tax collectors and the moneylenders, and in his sermons he drew on the facts of everyday life. The road menders and carpenters and small children could grasp, hearing his words, the meaning contained in those parables and metaphors and gasp if he seemed to perform miracles. That he gained a following is beyond all the doubts of historicity, and there is also evidence of his execution. What flouts all reason and logical explanation, though, is the claim that Christ was able to rise again from his tomb. And yet, to believe the resurrection really did take place is the keystone for all who would cleave to Christian faith. It has been in his name that the greatest of all forms of culture have arisen, though greatness was never the aim of his ministry. He would instead refer to the importance of humility, meekness and charity. He said that love should outweigh the legal authority of the temple and its rabbis and urged us above all else to be as kind to a neighbour as to those whose brutality we forgive by turning the opposite side of our slapped face. How few have been able to live up to those precepts. In his recorded speech, armed conquest and political power are never enjoined on his followers. Each of the instances implies that the weak shall tower above the strong only when last reckonings are made. 
When he came to Jerusalem, though, his arrest was always beckoning, and what ensued proved that, at least to them, the administrators, the movement he led, had been about politics, for the fate he suffered was, in those times, reserved for rebels against the Roman-ruled state. Three days after the crucifixion, he rose above mere earthly governance. All faith in his divinity begins with those who met him, after the presumed death of his body, walking on sunlit roads or in taverns filled with the cheerful sound of public dining. He lifted his robes to let the septic touch his fatal wound. It probably doesn't become apparent as apparent when hearing it as it does when reading it. Uh, the wonderful use, which again is something that Jamie's work is, is noted for, these interlocking sounds. Uh, his rhymes are not like, uh, I think Richard Wilbur or Clive James said, not like, um, about rhyme, not like locks clicking shut on a briefcase. But in, in Jamie's case, the, I don't know if you've seen Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times and that wonderful scene where he gets rolled long and down through the mechanism. But those cogs and screws and everything, we just get sort of gently and but gradually wound into um, the poem until it um, reaches its what seems to be its inevitable conclusion. But the other thing that I just want to say is that there's in that um, poem just the turn of the line where he says um, the, bio the essential things about the biography of Jesus Christ to persuade one of their authenticity because of the particulars which just ring true, that that wonderful ambiguity just ring true, um, that is, they just make it as ringing true, but also almost the opposite effect, depending on how it's stated, they just ring true. And I think that those two meanings turning on a single word at the line end um, capture something essential about the meaning of the poem, which is about how, what are we to make of, of this person? Do they just ring true or do they just ring true? And that kind of effect you'll find uh, throughout this book. There are other poems I wanted to mention, but I need to leave time for Jamie to read some. Uh, so I'm very proud and very happy to launch Hallucination 21st Century Poems by Jamie Grant. suppose I have to read some of these poems out. Um, there's a poem here called Immortal. I have to take my glasses off to see them. New Year's Eve. A fireworks display above the harbour. Immense crowds pack the shoreline. Laughter and drinking and senseless brawls. Policemen make their way past fold-out chairs and picnic rugs, their flashlights blinking. The noise is like that of an airborne attack with lights and explosions. Stairs that lead to vantage points are bordered by shining faces. Among them, a teenage boy is caught up in an argument the police have to settle and is ordered to leave. 
he goes off looking for an unlighted easement that would lead to where he might rejoin his friends. To get there, he follows a stranger, another boy, down a laneway and into such darkness that neither can see where their feet ought to be placed. In a part of town no one visits in daylight, the rock-scattered, steep embankment above a long, disused railway siding. Some bits of what is to follow must remain fixed in his memory. The ground slips, and then he is tumbling in air, bouncing off stones and stumps down to the old train tracks, where he sprawls with bruises and broken bones, aware mainly of the sharpness of shoulder blades and hips. Afterwards, phone calls and ambulance sirens, confusion and lights and cameras, a person's broken form strapped onto a stretcher to be winched up the cliff face. The next day's television news will portray the scene as two faceless figures are inched towards safety's open doors. He comes to less harm than someone else may have done after such a tumble. Later, in the ambulance, it seems as if he is in a dream full of blinding light. His friends come to find him in the hospital. I was immortal, I once thought, he will soon write on Facebook. Then I felt off a cliff. Now I know I'm immortal. <laughs> A lot of my poems follow the forms of existing poems written by other people, and a lot of these are rhyming forms. But I wrote one poem following the form of, the, of a poem by the American poet, Frank Bedart, who always writes sort of um, prose poems. So this is called Don't Ask the Experts. The finest medical scientists are unable to find a cure or even the cause of many common ailments. Economists cover pages with graphs and figures, but they cannot explain the behaviour of the economy. Meteorologists use radar and computers to foretell the coming weather, which is not the same thing as the climate, but their forecasts are incorrect as often as the choices of a gambler. Climate change has become an academic specialty, yet it is no more than a speculative extension of meteorology. Judges and lawyers intentionally misunderstand the law for their own purposes. Philosophers use their reasoning techniques to seek to persuade us of notions that are not true one proving that a people who continue to exist are the victims of a genocide, another arguing that it, is that it is appropriate to liberate animals as it is to kill newborn human children. As a university student in Cambridge, my father was introduced by his tutor, John Maynard Keynes, to the 15-year-old ballerina, Margot Fontaine, 
Keynes knew about ballet, but his repute derived from economics, not from the dance. Political scientists teach their students that communist is a good idea long after the fall of communism. Psychiatry began with the diagnosis that mistook a cellar beneath the multi-storey building that is the human psyche for the house in its entirety. The worst lecturer I ever heard, my father once declared, was John Maynard Keynes. <laughs> Restaurant critics praise inedible food. The films that are recommended most highly always prove unbearable to watch. My father travelled to Scotland and booked a golf lesson with one of Edinburgh's most renowned professionals. But all that he was told was, hit it, mon. <laughs> the wedding celebrant is a divorcee. <laughs> the tradesman who come to your house after the wedding, the electrician, the carpenter, the man from the phone company and the computer technician, all are unable to resolve the problems you have called them about. While the roofer and the arborist are both professional confidence tricksters. The architect designs an extension with a leaking roof. The chemistry professor knows nothing about physics. The physicist is ignorant of biology. The biologist cannot grasp sociology. The social scientist has no feeling for literature. The English lecturer dislikes poetry. Many poets know nothing about poetry. The worst lecturer I ever heard, my father declared on another day, was G.M. Trevelyan. <laughs> then we've been talking about golf with Jeff Lehman, so I have to read this from an ordinary fellow. Where have you been, John? One member of our Friday foursome had not been around the golf club for a fortnight. No one usually noticed him, apart from sensing the awesome power of his tee shots and the way they curved to the right to end up blocked out by some overhanging limb. John himself was a mild and unassuming chap, polite and spectacle-wearing, with an average frame, who, like us all, had good days and bad, and who others might not even know without his cap. Even his surname was unremarkable. Still, he was always there. Where else would he go? Except for the golf, what meaning did daytime hold for us golfers? Where have you been? I've been to Copenhagen, he replied, looking up from cleaning a titleist in the ball washer that stood beside the green. What on earth for? An award ceremony for inventors. We all laughed at that. Why would one go to such an event? I was named on the shortlist for a prize. And did you win? Well... Actually, I did. 
So he had to have invented something. To persist in our questioning, we began to imagine what kind of an invention such an ordinary fellow might have come up with. Some painless mousetraps or accessories for high-fly players, an anti-snore pillow or innovative machinery for the farm, perhaps. But then he silenced us. I invented Wi-Fi. This, uh, this poem ends with a, a line from my daughter, Emily. My carrot. Always in pairs, the rainbow lorikeets tap on the glass to demand prompt service, masterful as a wealthy patron and exclusive restaurant, summoning the waiter with a nod. The colours in their plumage are those of the spectrum, scarlet, yellow and blue, against a leaf green background, suggesting opulence and power. And they are powerful, feared by all other birds for their sharp, scimitar-curved beaks and for the way they move in tight groups like Roman phalanxes. They mingle only with their own kind, and hence they practice racism, breeding purity like Nazis. At sunset, they gather in the branches of a conifer, screaming like a playground of primary school students, their bright colours invisible and the darkening foliage. Amid the, amid the darkening foliage, in daylight, they hurtle like missiles at head height or hover over pollen-weighted camellia blooms, soft-footed as butterflies, unafraid of any human presence, muttering to one another in tones that sound like the creak of an underworld garden gate, they shimmer with the pure significance of the entirely insignificant. A lorikeet is perched on a limb within a child's arm length. The two-year-old Possessive by nature, despite a still incomplete vocabulary, insist, this one's my carrot. one's called Allergies. As a very small boy, before my memory begins, I was prone to skin complaints and other reactions. Given the allergy test, where a doctor paints the essence of various substances over a series of scratches down one's back, I turned out to be sensitive to almost everything, from haystacks and pollens to house dust, mould, eggs, milk, and animal products such as cat, dog, and horse hair. The specialist told my parents that they would need to rid their home of all these things. My father smiled. Wouldn't it be easier, he asked, 
like an evil gnome, to get rid of the child. <laughs> and then because we had the Les thing, I, I suppose I have to read the poem about Les's funeral, the rainbow funeral. We left town under clear sky, heading north. The highway straddled a broad tidal river with its islands and oyster farms, pleasure boats and rock faces like cloud forms, all worth stopping for on another day, before we climbed inland to be flanked by tight-packed tree plantings that were stacked dense as hedges. On this day to be the driver felt like a privilege as scenery glimpsed sideways through the, through the screen was cancelled by speed. Two hours on the road, then the car parked on a verge opposite to a country church. A crowd of strangers stood outside, unsure of what to say to one another. Faint music emerged through the door, so we went in to find a pew. Before the altar, held up on wheels, and smothered in fresh flowers the coffin. Inside it, a familiar form, almost unbearable to think about, no longer at that kitchen table of ours, reading and spilling his tea, talking out his latest concern. The sky that was clear when we entered the church, as bright and clean as glass, darkened over the camellia trees that lined the roadside. As the service progressed, there came a tumbling sound, as if the coffin's occupant had turned over in his sleep. So some were nervous that he might be resurrected and return to walk among us. But it came from a thunderstorm outside, and the rain rushed over the stony, consecrated ground. The wooden box was borne along the aisle by six strong men. Everyone followed and organ music played. The box settled in the rear of a station wagon while the crowd looked on in the cloud mottled light. And then the vehicle rolled away behind three priests with their grey hair and their white robes walking slowly on the road. At last we returned to the country road that had led this way, driving past a file of trees and farm buildings, crops and bales of hay, slopes and rivulets. Then suddenly there glowed above the earth and above the day an ordinary rainbow, as if to stand for he who had departed. It was there to hand us back to our ongoing lives in literary style as a knowing textual reference, its arc lighting up the land, his written words once imbued with depth and meaning, the trees and animals and humans fighting for survival against the elements. Past milk factories, pine plantations, dams and inlets, cars were racing on the highway like bullets, while cattle waited on fields the rain renewed.
Thank you for listening to the Campion College podcast. For more information on our courses, upcoming events, and ways you can financially support Campion College, visit campion.edu.au.